Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Cola Cast. I said, Charles, don't you ever crave to appear on the front of the Daily Mail, rest in your mother's bride veil. Well, Chuck, you get the chance now because the Queen is indeed. Dead. Last night on the Guardian's Today in Focus podcast, Guardian journalist Jonathan Friedland talked about how Queen Elizabeth was England's last vestige of its self-perceived post-war glory. Friedland also gave some rare praise, or at least acknowledgement, to Boris Johnson for saying something that was factually correct when Johnson stated recently that... Apparently, they've done studies on this in England and found that an incredible amount of English people dream about the Queen. So she figured into the literal consciousness of England in a very prominent way. Today, I'm going to discuss the book England's Dreaming, Anarchy, Sex Pistols, Punk Rock, and Beyond, which was written by John Savage and originally published in 1991. Savage talks about how Ever since the end of World War II, England had been carrying around this idea of how they beat the Nazis, how they fought them on the beaches, they fought them in the streets, they fought them in their underpants, and they had made the world safe for democracy, Churchill, rule Britannia. England kept all of that, not only until the end of the 40s and throughout the 50s and throughout the 60s, but into the 70s as well. And when this generation of young punks start coming up, they're experiencing an England that is not idealized, that is crumbling. The infrastructure, the social institutions, the welfare state, everything is falling apart around them. Meanwhile, the older generation is walking around stiff upper lip, yada, 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 past the Great Poupon. At one point in the book, Savage says that punk, quote, was perversely pleasurable. Any apocalypse seemed preferable to the slow death by suffocation. That is all too often the emotional experience of living in England. So today I'll talk about Savage's book in relation to UK punks in the 1970s. And I'll talk about how the book addresses punk culture, dress, and politics, and how those three things interrelate and overlap. And when I say dress, I'm defining it the way Joanne Eicher and Mary Ellen Roach defined it in the 1990s, and as I think most fashion scholars have defined it since then, which dress is any addition to or modification of the body. So clothing, obviously those are articles of dress, elements of dress, but so too are piercings, tattoos, scent, cologne, perfume, etc. Specifically, I'm going to talk about how the punks use Nazi iconography, most notably the swastika, and how they incorporated the swastika into their dress. There will be times in this podcast where I give a <laughs> sympathetic interpretation to what the punks are trying to convey with the swastika, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to attack English bourgeois culture. But I've already said too much. I should have put this disclaimer right up front before I even introduce the show because I want to make sure that there is no room 
to misconstrue what I'm saying here. I do not support or excuse wearing the swastika. Period. It's true that many of the English punks wore swastikas as an attack on English bourgeois culture and the prevailing mythology of that culture, but wearing swastikas is bad. At least in cultures where they are understood primarily as Nazi symbols. Yes, the swastika is an ancient symbol, and yes, it has maintained positive meanings in some places in the world. But anyone in the United States or England who in the year of our Lord 2022 responds to photos of soldiers in their new favorite army wearing swastika tattoos, or they see photos of the Finnish Air Force's old flag, which had a swastika, and when those people see those images and they say, actually... It's an ancient Buddhist symbol. Those people are, at best, being disingenuous. Finland's Air Force adopted the swastika well before the Nazis misappropriated it. That's true. But it's silly that it took the Finns until 2020 to stop using the swastika. And to say that the Finns held on to the swastika because they refused to allow Hitler to define the swastika's meaning as I have seen people argue on Twitter, <laughs> this is idiotic. Hitler ruined the swastika the same way he ruined that weird little mustache. And that weird little mustache actually enjoyed a vogue among Central European gentlemen prior to Hitler's rise. Okay, before we get into the UK punk's lurid associations with the swastika, some quick background on English punk. A lot of times people say the Sex Pistols were not a legitimate band, that they were just a marketing device to sell clothing, and that they were a glorified boy band. Those people are right. That's that's pretty much the size of it. In a lot of ways, UK Punk started as a marketing tool for a shop on the King's Road in London called Sex. Sex was run by Vivian Westwood and her partner at the time, Malcolm McLaren. The shop went by several names and iterations over the years. It was Let It Rock, then it was Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, then it was Sex, and finally, it was known as Seditionaries. And with each name change, there was also a change of identity, of branding, the merchandise changed, the clientele changed, the overall approach of what Westwood and McLaren were doing changed. Sex was the shop that was sex, that was all these other things, was really a lab for Westwood and McLaren to work out their ideas. McLaren would go on to be the Zvengali manager of the Sex Pistols. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four! The woman who managed the shop was named Jordan, and she dressed in the clothing that they sold at the shop, which was largely clothing that had traditionally been associated, or that was still associated, that had only ever <laughs> been associated with sadomasochism and bondage. But Westwood and McLaren and Jordan were presenting 
this quote-unquote fetish clothing as streetwear. And Jordan wore it on the street. And she got into a lot of situations because of that, as she talks about the book. But this is what Jordan says about the pistols and about Sex the Shop. She says, Sex did create such a great buzz about the band. The clothes were an important part of the makeup. Initially, the Sex Pistols were just a vehicle. The real t-shirt boom came after the group came along. That was the vehicle to sell the band. So, all right. The t-shirt she's talking about is this collection of shirts. Not really a collection. It was just the way that Westwood and McLaren made t-shirts, the way that they designed. They were really provocative. They traded in controversy. They were in many ways what today people might call edgelord-ish. Of course, the problem with that is now everybody's an edgelord. If you say fuck the queen, you're being an edgelord. It used to be that edgelords were far-right, mouth-breathing teenagers who made Pepe memes in Auschwitz, right? That was being an edgelord. Just overtly disgusting and no point at all to any of it. And you could hide behind it all with a wink and a smile. You know, it'd take a joke lib. But now an edgelord is just anything that people don't like. In much the same way that woke means nothing. That tanky means nothing. Nothing means anything anymore. And in that sense, we are very much like 1970s England. A lot of this stuff has been going on for a long time. All right, so the sex t-shirts. One of the t-shirts, quoting Savage in the book, featured, quote, the troubling image of a 12-year-old boy suggestively exhaling a cigarette, which came from Boys Express, a small pedophile magazine sold openly with a contact address in Essex. So let's just hold that thought real quick. Let me tell you about another t-shirt which featured an illustration of two cowboys. This shirt was drawn in the style of Tom of Finland, if you're familiar. The two cowboys are facing each other. They're wearing cowboy boots, cowboy hats, and not much else. And they're two (laughs) prodigious penises are hanging low, and the heads of the organs are nearly touching. One of Sex's customers wore that shirt in public and was arrested. And so, let me play devil's advocate. It's altogether possible, from a certain point of view, that Westwood and McLaren, with the 12-year-old boy shirt, are saying, okay, this is disgusting, this is offensive, This a 12-year-old boy smoking and looking sexy, but this isn't something we created. This is something that's out in the open in a small pedophile magazine that, as Savage says, is sold openly. And it has a contact address in Essex. You know where they're at. (laughs) You know where to find the people who are putting out this filth. But you don't care about it. It's been out. It's been published. It's been circulated. But we're going to put it on a t-shirt and we're going to put it in your face. And you can be disgusted all you want, as well you should be, But I'm disgusted with you because you don't care about this until it inconveniences you. And by inconvenience, I mean having to see it on the street. The magazine is sold in the shadows, albeit openly with a contact address in Essex. But we're going to put it on a shirt that people wear on the street that you have to look at. And instead of being disgusted that this magazine exists, you're going to be disgusted with us for putting it in your face. So Savage 
And the book talks about how the sexual liberation of the 1960s had given way to just an empty, hollow set of ready-made postures and commercial propositions in the mid-70s. So when Westwood and McLaren did a t-shirt that had a design of letterboxed female breasts at chest level, there's really nothing sexual about it. It might be a little harder to defend a t-shirt that showed a hood, the hood, in fact, that was worn by a rapist who had been terrorizing women in Cambridge. And when the shop pulled the shirt and McLaren found out that they were pulling the shirt, he was furious and he went back to work on the design and made it even more offensive by adding <laughs> by adding additional elements. It was during the Too Fast period that McLaren and Westwood first put a swastika onto a piece of clothing. They studded a leather miniskirt with a swastika. And in the shoot for that product, the model is wearing, what else? A steel Nazi helmet. All right, let's have just a few real quick notes on politics in general with punk. In the last episode on Please Kill Me and U.S. Proto-Punk, we talked about how David Johansson and Legs McNeil were both interviewed for that book, and they both made a point that U.S. punk was not political. And that's something that comes up again in the book England Streaming, that the U.S. punks really didn't have any kind of political agenda, affiliation, or ideology. Contrast that with England's Dreaming, where John Savage spends the first, I don't know, 60 pages, 70 pages. This book, by the way, with notes, is over 600 pages long. But Savage spends the first part of the book really taking pains to position McLaren in a political space, even though McLaren was not a serious political person. In the book, one of his contemporaries, someone who knew both Malcolm and Vivian, told John Savage this. The artists who created punk were Malcolm and Vivian, and they created it in this very 60s art school hippie kind of way. All that revolution, anti-materialism, yippie, pro-minority. Little did Vivian know that Malcolm wasn't committed to the revolution, he was committed to himself. And it took her a long time to realize that. When we're talking about revolution here, a lot of this has to do with Paris 1968 and how that form of direct action became sort of an aesthetic. John Savage says 1968 turned aesthetic style into political gesture. So style becomes political, but I think that you you can flip that as well. The politics of 1968, the direct action, the sense of urgency, the danger all of that real stuff turned into an aesthetic style as well. McLaren's art school days are documented in the book. He booked several concerts, and he would advertise the concerts. He would promote the bands who were coming, and <laughs> setting the standard for the rest of his career, these concerts fell through. McLaren was great at hype and not so great at substance. But the book does talk about how McLaren was involved with situationism. At one point, he dressed up like Santa Claus with 24 other people and handed out gifts to kids in a department store on Oxford Street. And this created a huge commotion inside the store. And <laughs> the gifts also included a flyer that encouraged the children to set fire <laughs> to Oxford Street. 
So there's lots of mentions in the book of the motherfuckers, our friends from the first episode in the series, who went crazy at the Fillmore East in New York when they saw the MC5 arrive for the show and step out of a limousine. The motherfuckers caused a legitimate riot inside the venue. Those guys are mentioned in here. Situationist international spinoff groups like King Mob, etc. are mentioned. And Savage tries really hard to situate McLaren in that milieu. And I think with Savage, I don't think he's trying to convince us that McLaren was a serious political person. I think he's just trying to show how the, the origins of UK punk, which go through McLaren... Make no mistake, even the aesthetics of UK punk came out of politics. McLaren was in a highly charged political environment when he was in school. Things seemed to be changing in a sort of upheaval in the world, and that was the situation he came out of. Whether or not he was serious politically or not, the things he was serious about, even if it was just vacuous marketing hype, was expressed in a political way. It was expressed using the imagery, the language of politics. We heard how Malcolm was fundamentally unserious about politics. Here is what a woman who worked at sex named Debbie Wilson told Savage about Vivian. When the Teddy Boy season started, it was horrific. They smashed in the windows at least four or five times. We really were hated up there. We used to hide in the cupboards. Vivian got off on the violence because people were rebelling against something they didn't want. Her attitude was, don't be scared, stand up for yourself. And we'd say, Viv, there's a six foot two girl out there waiting to beat the shit out of me. Vivian would say, now don't you worry. Viv's political views were really hard to cope with because they were not real. At one point in the book, Savage says, the contradiction on which punk foundered was its attempt to critique and change consumption and media from within. Punk would ultimately lose this fight, and it wasn't much of a fight at all. <laughs> you could say that it was the battle was over before it even started because they were created as a means to encourage consumption. They were created to sell products for sex. There's a couple instances in here where people say, as Jordan said earlier about the t-shirts, but even more explicitly than that, people say things like, the Sex Pistols started to sell trousers. So the contradiction that Punk founders on, according to Savage, is it tried to critique and change consumption in media from within, but it was producing media. Its own media, whether it was zines like Sniff and Glue, or it was creating media content like the Sex Pistols' infamous appearance on The Grundy Show, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then, again, the Sex Pistols were an advertisement. Johnny wore clothes from sex. All the guys wore clothes from sex. If there's any doubt about who won the struggle between punk and consumption and media, Vivian Westwood, to you, that's Dame Vivian Isabel Westwood, D-B-E-R-D-I. The woman who created swastika clothing, the woman who rebelled against the English establishment. She's a Dane. <laughs> so that tells us everything. And if McLaren were still alive, he would be more than happy to be whatever the equivalent is. I don't, a knight? I don't know. Johnny Rotten, just this last few days here when the queen died, 
the official Johnny Lydon Twitter account, sent out a very nice tweet saying how sad it was that the queen died. God save the queen. She's not a human being. Her fascist regime, but I'm sad when she dies. Now, of course, Johnny Rotten also wears MAGA hats and all of these guys, not all of these guys, but a lot of these old crusty punks are now reactionary, are now reactionary. That's my mistake, the way I worded that. They're not reactionary now. They were always reactionary. I mentioned this in the first episode on Please Kill Me and U.S. Punk when I talked about how when he was a 21-year-old, something like that, when he was older than 20, Iggy Pop had a 14-year-old girlfriend, as did one of the Ashton brothers. I always get them confused, and I don't want to <laughs> say the wrong name. But one of the guys in the Stooges with Iggy also dated a teenager when he was... And he was older than Iggy. And when I say teenager, she was like 14, 15. So we have an idea in our heads that punks are sort of implicitly, naturally, inherently anti-fascist and left-leaning because they're anti-establishment. But I don't know if they're anti-establishment as much as anti-authority. And because authority comes from the establishment, it's easy to confuse those two things. But they're anti any authority. And I, I'm talking specifically about folks like Iggy, Johnny Lydon. Sid Vicious is explicit about this when he went to jail, and we'll get to that in a little bit. These guys want to do whatever they want, whenever they want, regardless of how it impacts other people. That's all that they've ever wanted. And that's why it's so easy for them to find themselves as conservatives later in life when a Donald Trump comes along, because that's what Trumpism is all about. Personal freedom is placed above everything. The well-being of the group, the well-being of the planet, it's all about instant gratification. And so, when people say that conservatism is the new punk rock, for a lot of these guys, they've always been conservative. Along the same lines of punk trying to critique and change consumption and media from within savage asks at one point how can you play with right-wing imagery and not get trapped by it coming on the heels of that question <laughs> we should ask why play with right-wing imagery at all all right here we go getting into the swastika stuff in the please kill me episode we talked about dd ramon's fascination with nazi relics which he found by digging around in the rubble of West Berlin growing up. Dee Dee's dad was stationed over there in the service. And later, Dee Dee would befriend Arturo Vega, an artist in New York, fascinated with swastikas and painted day glow swastikas and had a whole series of these. And he also had like a full Nazi uniform in his apartment. This is Arturo Vega. The band The Dead Boys wore swastikas and in Please Kill Me, one of their producers talks about getting ready to record the band and the drummer shows up with a swastika armband on and she has to educate this guy about the symbol and what it means. He says he doesn't really understand what it means. Is wild, 
to think that, especially when you consider the Hitler wave that came during the 70s, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I don't know. You know, I just saw a video online. A guy who was in the service was saying that he didn't even understand. He wasn't sure why we were at war. He wasn't sure what it was all about. And this was, he grew up in the wake of 9-11. I mean, I guess it's possible people grew up in the wake of World War II not really understanding what these symbols mean. If you've seen the documentary The Dancing Outlaw and the sequel to that where the Dancing Outlaw himself, Jessica White, goes to Hollywood for an appearance on Roseanne, Roseanne rightfully has a little bit of a... She's infuriated by Jessica's swastika tattoo on his hand and Jessica... And I tend to believe the guy said, I don't know. I didn't, I don't know what it means. He went to a Hollywood tattoo studio and had it covered. It's interesting that David Johansson said that he wasn't political. The New York Dolls weren't political. Malcolm McLaren went to New York before the Sex Pistols. He went to New York. He managed the Dolls. His big idea was to put them in red suits and have them perform in front of a Soviet flag. Soviet flag is the backdrop on stage. And he booked a tour for them in Florida in shithole bars. And so he puts these guys who, you know, have long hair. Up to this point, their entire career, they've been wearing conventional women's clothing. And he puts them in front of this symbol that is going to rile up. McLaren figures, well, this will rile up all these people in rural Florida. And he was probably right. And that was towards the end of the dolls. McLaren actually did help them. He helped some of the guys get clean. So as much as I rag on McLaren, and as much as McLaren deserves it, he he actually did help them, did help some of the guys get clean. And when Sid was arrested, McLaren went hat in hand to Richard Branson. They were big-time rivals. And he basically went and begged for money to get Sid out of jail. So this guy did show up for his band members when they needed him. Towards the end of their career, the Dolls would use the Soviet flag and in that context, it was this empty political gesture. But they were no strangers to empty political gestures. While talking about the dolls and Please Kill Me, Savage writes, For those trying to locate Pop's id, the basic punk attitude wasn't enough. It had been done countless times. A sharp shock was needed to get a reaction from dull reflexes. As well as exhibiting their exciting incompetence, the dolls occasionally used the swastika. And then there is a quote here from David Johansson. Savage quotes him as saying, In grammar school, you get a loose-leaf book, and the first thing you draw in it is a swastika and a skull and crossbones. This was in an interview in 1973. He said, You carve a swastika on a desk. You don't know what fascism is. It's not anti-Jewish at all. Kids don't care anything about that shit. <laughs> I'm not trying to virtue signal here. I do not recall ever... <laughs> decorating my notebooks with swastikas or carving a swastika into anything. This does call to mind something that McLaren used as a motto in one of his college essays. He had like a manifesto and he wrote, be childish, be irresponsible, be disrespectful, be everything this society hates. Along with this, and please kill me, McLaren gave an interview where he was saying how in school, if he was bad, 
the teacher would make him write, I will not be bad, like how, you know, 50 times or whatever. Here he was, a grown man, giving this interview and gleefully recounting how instead of writing, I will not be bad, he would write, I will be so bad. And that's kind of this side of punk. That's what I'm talking about with the anti-authority aspect has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with being a spoiled brat. In addition to dating teenage girls when he was in his 20s, Iggy Pop's bandmate Ron Ashton, it was Ron, of the Ashton brothers. Ron Ashton had an extensive collection of Nazi memorabilia, and he stood in Iggy's wedding while wearing a full Nazi dress uniform. Ron Ashton was not the only person who did this. Malcolm McLaren also had an extensive collection of Nazi memorabilia, including wedding bands. Fashion was at the center of English punk, or at least London. In some of the other places, the punk culture was very different. But in London, I think it's fair to say that punk culture was extremely fashion-oriented, which is no surprise considering where it started, literally at, <laughs> at a clothing shop. And not only a clothing shop, but a shop that was fairly avant-garde at that time where they're selling rubber shirts, long-sleeve latex shirts, traditional, conventional S&M gear as streetwear. So that is very fashion-oriented. That's not just like selling clothing. Fashion, style, dress, very important to the UK, at least London punks. But this was also really important in the U.S., U.S. punk, in a lot of ways, is considered more serious, more legitimate, less finessed, less contrived than English punk. And when it comes to the groups like the Sex Pistols, <laughs> I think that's fair. But there was a definite look for the New York punks as well. And that style really starts with Richard Hell. Savage says, Hell had also worked out a visual package to go with the chopped musical style. Large 50s shades, leather jackets, torn t-shirts, and short ragamuffin hair. This was a severe aesthetic that carried a series of messages. The existential freedom of the 50s beat, the blazing beautiful self-destruction of the poet Madi, and the razor sharpness of the 60s mod. It spelt danger and refusal, just as the torn t-shirt spoke of sexuality and violence. If such a thing is possible to identify, it was the origin of what would become the punk style. Legs McNeil in England's Dreaming talks about how he went to see the Ramones with a friend and they were wearing t-shirts and denim jackets and Legs felt really embarrassed because here were the Ramones on stage wearing leather jackets. And specifically, the Ramones really popularized the shot perfecto jacket, that asymmetrical motorcycle jacket. And the next day after the show, Legs McNeil went out and bought himself a leather jacket. The Ramones wore ripped jeans and they wore skimpy t-shirts because that's what Dee Dee wore when he worked as a hustler on the street, which inspired the Ramones song 53rd and 3rd. Didi lived that life, and that was how he dressed as part of his professional attire. So what's interesting about the Richard Hell thing for me is that Hell started working with Tim Verlaine in 1972 and they, when they formed the duo The Neon Boys. Then in 74, the two guys reconstituted as television, 
And just two years after that, in 1976, the style, the punk style that Hell had innovated had become a costume. And here is how one person remembers the infamous Grundy show appearance by the Pistols. This is a quote from Marco Peroni, a guitarist who played Susie's first gig. And actually, the drummer for that gig was a young Simon John Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious. So this is what Peroni says about the Sex Pistols appearance on the Grundy show. Bill Grundy was the end of it for me, really. From something artistic and almost intellectual in weird clothes, suddenly there were these fools with dog collars on and punk written on their shirts and B-row. I also wonder if Peroni was especially disgusted by the Grundy show appearance because in addition to the Sex Pistols, the group brought along some of their super fans to the show. A group of kids who were called the Bromley Contingent because they were from suburban Bromley in London. The Bromley Contingent included a young Susie Sue. And it was actually Grundy's creepy old man flirtations with Susie that sparked a lot of the <laughs> the infamous exchanges between Grundy and the Pistols. So basically, the Grundy thing, there was a show, the Grundy show, and they lost a guest at the last minute, and one of the producers knew McLaren and got a hold of McLaren and said, we need somebody to fill in, so the Sex Pistols fill in, and it just went to hell. It was one of the most infamous moments in British television history, certainly, if not television history around the world. Basically, the Sex Pistols end up saying some rude words. Someone says shit, I think, maybe Johnny. And Grundy says, oh, what'd you say? What'd you say? He says, oh, nothing was a rude word. And he says, oh, come on. No, what was it? And he says, shit. And Grundy says, what a clever boy. And then somebody else in the band says, what a fucking rotter. <laughs> and it just went downhill from there. The group were actually in danger. They went to the green room after the show and the phone starts ringing off the hook with people complaining and the drivers for the group come in and say, we have to get you out of here now. You're not safe. We have to go now. And I, the police came. I mean, it was a whole thing. And if that seems excessive, consider that in 2022, where was it in Edinburgh? I saw this morning that someone was arrested for just holding a sign that said, in the monarchy. Now, Susie makes her first appearance in the book, England's Dreaming. She's talking about the suburban drudgery in Bromley and how she wanted to escape it. And she did escape it by working at clubs in London, in the West End. She worked at one called the Valbone, but she didn't necessarily love the Valbone because, quote, at night it was disgusting, full of Arabs. So there's an incident in punk, UK punk history here that is recounted a couple different ways in the book. Peroni remembers it happening one way, someone else remembers it another, but there is this sort of legend that has basis in truth, where the manager of the Clash, who, as you might imagine, come out of this whole thing <laughs> smelling like a rose compared to the Pistols and everyone else, and I think we can all agree without question that the Clash have survived the test of time whereas the Sex Pistols have not. Anyway, the Clash's manager will not allow Susie's group to use the Clash's equipment because Susie's wearing a swastika. So Peroni remembers it that way. Here's a version that's a little bit different. This was from an article in The Guardian. 
Artist, activist, and punk chronicler Caroline Kuhn recalls rehearsals for the 100 Club's first punk festival in 1976. Malcolm started handing out swastika armbands he'd made, or that he'd had made. Susie of the Banshees put one on right away, and some of the pistols seemed ready to follow suit. Aghast, Rhodes, this is Bernard Rhodes, the, the Clash's manager, aghast, Rhodes blurted out that if anyone wore swastikas on stage, they couldn't use the Clash's instruments as planned. The Clash backed him up, the gig went on, no swastikas. Then the writer of this article goes on to say, the subverted symbol might not have been much of a concern had it not been for the growing reach of the National Front, which at the time of social crisis was gaining traction and used punk for youth recruitment. So in this instance, punks using the swastika are actually providing cover for fascists. Another point here is Bernard Rose was Jewish, so you can understand why he would be offended by the use of the swastika. Malcolm McLaren, the guy who had the swastikas made, also Jewish. I'm not Jewish, so I am in no position to judge this guy. Yikes. Susie explained her use of the swastika to Savage. In the book, Savage writes, It was wild. He's talking about UK punk. It was wild, whereas everything had been more proficient in New York. There was a sense of chaos, and the New York scene was not about chaos, but the Sex Pistols created a sense of, what the fuck is happening? It had politics. American punk had no politics at that stage. America at that point couldn't decide what was going to happen next. They had a liberalish government. The best thing to do was to disengage. In England, there was a nightmare coming to life. It was overpowering and disturbing. Something had been given permission to show itself. It was exploding out. This is actually a quote. One thing about the book, and it's it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be easy to forget who's being quoted because Savage will have like paragraphs without a break of someone being quoted. And I actually don't know, <laughs> I don't know who said that. But then Savage follows up this long quote by saying, if there was one symbol of this nightmare, it was the punk use of the swastika. And now he's quoting Susie. It was always very much an anti-moms and anti-dads thing. We hated older people, not across the board, but particularly in suburbia, always harping on about Hitler. We showed them, and that smug pride. It was a way of saying, well, I think Hitler was very good, actually. A way of watching someone like that go completely red-faced. In an interview with Uncut in 2005, Susie said, The culture around then, it was Monty Python, Basil Fawlty, Freddie Starr, the producers, springtime for Hitler. Close quote. Susie kicks out her leg in a mock goose step. Quote, It was used as a glamour thing. And you know what? I have to be honest, but I do like the Nazi uniform. I shouldn't say it, but I think it's a very good-looking uniform. The journalist asks, you shouldn't say it for fear of upsetting the PC mob? Susie answers, yeah, it's almost like you feel like saying, oh, come on, Nazis, they're brilliant. Oof, man. <clears throat> she goes on, political correctness becomes imprisoning. It's very, what's the word? It's being very Nazi. It's ironic, but this PC-ness is so fucking fascist. <laughs> in america they're especially touchy about nazis and it's so nazi you go to la and it's so segregated it's very nazi and the irony is they don't get it they don't realize how nazi they are about taking offense to mentioning the word nazi all right 
So, real quick, just to give her a modicum of credit, where she says you go to L.A., it's so segregated. One of the things about people in the United States is we tend to not have any self-awareness at all. So, we have Ukraine flags in our bios, whereas it never in a million years would have occurred to us to have an Iraq flag in our bio or an Afghanistan flag in our bio or a Yemenese flag in our bio to show solidarity for the civilians who are being bombed by Saudis, flying jets that we refueled and dropping bombs that we made. I will give Susie credit if you were to cut that out. In America, they're especially touchy about Nazis and it's so Nazi you go to LA, it's so segregated. The rest of this is fucking nuts. This is, in 2005, she's talking about PC culture, which I think was, I feel like that was already kind of out of vogue at that point. It was definitely like post PC where we had, it had become hip to be cruel as part of, you know, backlash against PC where Gavin McInnes got his start with Vice Magazine writing their quote unquote transgressive do's and don'ts. He was the fashion editor there and would use homophobic slurs, uh, racial tropes, AIDS jokes, all in the name of being anti-PC, and you can see where that got us. That got us the Proud Boys. In any event, it's 2005, and she's talking about PC, and you could just find replace PC and replace it with the word woke, and it'd be the same thing. And this idea that it's Nazi to, <laughs> to be touchy about Nazis is just like Tim Pool saying, it's racist to say that I'm racist. So we have the godmother of goth, spouting what would become Tim Pool talking points. And in the same interview with Uncut, she's talking about a music critic who was her contemporary and was like taking her to task, taking Susie to task at the time for like wearing swastikas and stuff. Susie says, I've never met her. The way I saw it, it was an excuse. She didn't want to like us. It's plain old envy. Must be. Fat old cow. And then the journalist asks, what about the accusation of anti-Semitism? Come on, there was that original lyric in Love and Avoid. Too many Jews for my liking. Susie says that was a Severin lyric. Severin was one of Susie's bandmates. She sang, well, Severin wrote that. The journalist says, you sang it. Susie says, yeah, I sang it. But I took it as it was meant, as skin flints. Obviously, a lot of people didn't get it that way, so it was changed. So, <laughs> you know, she's so glib about all of this. Sadly, that lyric wasn't changed in time to prevent the far right from claiming Susie is one of their own. She was actually dismayed by the number of National Front fascists who started showing up at her gigs. And she resorted to wearing a Star of David t-shirt to repel them. So I guess at least that's something. And then here's some good stuff from Savage, which I should have brought this up <laughs> much earlier in the podcast when I started. He's talking about the English dream. He says, you attacked the generation of World War II. All that they could not express, you'd flaunt in their faces, stiff upper lip, morphing into blank stare and violent gesture. And then later, he says, England's dreaming. England is a country that refuses to squarely face the present. Indeed, even to admit that the present exists. Mary Heron, who worked on Punk Magazine with 
Legs McNeil and John Holstrom, she says of going to London, you could tell it was a different world. She interviewed the Sex Pistols for Punk. There was violence in the air. There was violence in the streets. I'd come from a place where it was dangerous, meaning New York. And therefore in your club, CBGB's, you don't want aggression and violence. Your club was an absolute sanctuary and haven where there was friendliness. Backstage at the 100 Club, I saw these little teenage girls with swastikas, and my reaction was, to us it's a cartoon. Here, this is being done for real. Savage writes, The wearing of the swastika served notice on the threadbare fantasy of victory, the lie of which could be seen on most urban street corners. That this fantasy was now obsolete was obvious to a generation born after the war and witness to England's decline. In a 2014 article in The Guardian, Vivian Goldman wrote about the punk's use of the swastika. And there's a photo for the article that I find really telling. It's the back of a jacket that is worn on body by a punk. Across the shoulders, there's a white stripe of paint. And the person has written, God save the queen, across the white stripe. And then below... The stripe on the left shoulder descending down the left back panel of the jacket, there is a Union Jack turned vertical. And on the right side, next to the Union Jack, there is a painted swastika. The punk has draped chain link around the jacket, around and over the shoulders, so that the, and then the chain is anchored into the jacket with safety pins. So, I mean, just think about how literal this is. The punk has linked together the Union Jack and the swastika with the same length of chain. The caption for the photo, a UK punk's jacket sporting the divisive swastika emblem. Certainly true, <laughs> but this kind of literalism of just reading things literally is really basic, and I mean that in a derogatory way. Again, this person shouldn't be wearing swastika, all right? But it's pretty clear what they're doing. If you were to take this jacket off the person, if you were to, let's just say, replicate this on a length of canvas, you position the emblems the same way, the signs the same way, you have the same paint, the same writing, the same length of chain, put that on canvas and put it on a wall, and the statement is super clear, but you put it on clothing, you put it on a jacket, and people want to kill you. There's something about it being on clothing that changes it for me. I don't know how to explain that. I'm interested if you have thoughts. You know, clothing isn't art. That doesn't mean it's bad or it's not as good as art or that it's frivolous, which obviously is a big thing with people who are very serious thinkers. Clothing is frivolous. Doesn't matter. I don't think about it. By the way, the only way that you can express your disdain for clothing is by the clothes you wear. And believe you me, that's a message that comes through loud and clear. But if you were to take all this media off this jacket, put it on a wall, I'm not sure what would happen if you put the jacket on a wall. But the media itself on a wall is provocative, but safe in a way that it becomes volatile when it's worn. And look, man, there's no good use of the swastika as a fashion accessory. At the same time, this punk with the jacket, with the Union Jack linked with the, the Nazi symbol. I get it. <laughs> you know, I get what you're doing. I understand the message, but 
there's something about clothing that is different from just an art installation. A lot of the folks, like Johnny Thunders, who wore the swastika, uh, Johnny Thunders was the guitarist in the New York Dolls, so he was David Johansson's bandmate. He wore the swastika. Savage says that to McLaren, Thunders wearing the swastika just to be obnoxious was like, was great. That was that that was one of the many great things about the New York Dolls is they were willing to wear hate symbols just to upset. So that I think is an appropriate use of the term edge lord. So the swastika played a big role in UK punk dress, at least in London at this time. But it was not something that happened without resistance. There was resistance to the swastika. We talked about Bernie Rhodes, who told Susie, like, you're not using my stuff. And then Savage includes some other instances by saying punk was trafficking in taboos at the same time as it sought to illuminate and dramatize deep-seated contradictions with a sophisticated ironic all right, it's trafficking in taboos, so it's using taboos to provoke. It's it's being transgressive, right? But at the same time, it wants to illuminate and dramatize deep-seated contradictions. And it's using a sophisticated, ironic rhetoric to do that. Savage goes on to say, Unlike many historical avant-garde movements, it had the potential to enter the mass market, and in November 1976 was poised to do so. But the mass market is notorious for simplifying complexities and steamrollering irony. And the idea of a youth movement with swastikas hitting the kids was simply terrifying. Punk's countdown to apocalypse suddenly seemed very dangerous. And here comes our buddy, a young John Lydon, who says, I thought Susie and Sid were quite foolish. Although I know the idea behind it, this is using the swastika. Although I know the idea behind it was to debunk all this crap from the past, wipe history clean, and have a fresh approach, it doesn't really work that way. Savage follows up this quote from Johnny Rotten by saying, there was one final point to the swastika, and it goes to the heart of punk polysemy, the erosion of meaning itself, the political inhumanity of the 20th century, and certain elements of the technological mass society have done injury to language, wrote George Steiner. What better way to display this lack of meaning but by detourning a once-loaded symbol? Sophie Richmond in the book says the mid-70s was the rise of the National Front and you didn't want to be encouraging those thugs. Malcolm always said of the Destroy t-shirt that he was making a general point about leaders, which was a bit too subtle for the average National Front member or even the average punk. It was a pipe dream. So the idea of people being able to get this subtlety that McLaren says he's trying to make through some of his provocative designs, Sophie Richmond is saying it was a pipe dream, thinking that people were going to get that. Jordan says, the shop was all about breaking taboos. The Epstein t-shirt was another aspect of it. I suppose the swastika was the ultimate shocking symbol. And Jordan wore that ultimate shocking 
symbol when she accompanied the Sex Pistols onto a show on Granada TV that Tony Wilson was producing. They're there. The Sex Pistols are not getting on with anybody else, which is, is not surprising. Jordan says, they got my back up because they wouldn't let me wear my swastika armband. They eventually put a piece of sticky tape over it. But that's why the performance was so good, because we were really pissed off. So they're pissed off because they go into Granada TV and meet Tony Wilson, and they won't let them wear swastikas. And the other people there just aren't as cool as them, essentially. She says that the Sex Pistols got in an argument with someone, a band called Gentlemen. They said they like Joni Mitchell, and you can imagine what John says. You fucking arsehole. <laughs> we realized that we were like fish out of water, but there was a definite ability to make the show work for us. This is the thing, right? It's we want to do what we want to do. When you don't let us do it, well, we're just going to make it work for us. We are going to make it work for us. Earlier I mentioned the Hitler wave as something that happened during the 1970s. Basically, during the 70s, there is this fascination with Hitler and all things Nazi. And this is kind of at the core when I'm taking up for punks, when I'm trying to see their point of view and you know, maybe being a bit too generous in that regard, accommodating them a bit too much with their use of the swastika. This is kind of what I'm getting at. During the Hitler wave, there are all these books, films, movies, TV shows about Hitler. Bestsellers. And what's on the cover of those bestsellers? Hitler, for sure, but also the swastika. I have... I mean, this is 40-some years after the Hitler wave. I have a book that was written by the guy who did Devil in the White City. It's called um, In the Garden of Beasts. It's about a diplomat. I think it's the ambassador to Germany, the U.S. ambassador to Germany during the rise of Hitler. On the front of the book, there's a graphic treatment of a swastika, and then there's a photograph of a Nazi building that is draped in those red banners, each of which has a swastika. So on the cover of this one book that was published sometime in the 2000-teens, there are around 15 swastikas on the cover of this book. And you put treatments on book covers to sell the book. So Danny Fields in Please Kill Me, Danny is talking about punks in New York, their use of the swastika. And Danny says, you know, I, I have a bookcase filled with books on the Nazis. This is how I process it. This is how I deal with it. Danny Fields had family members who were murdered by the Nazis. Danny Fields is Jewish, and the Nazis killed people in his family. And he dealt with that by just learning as much about the Nazis as he could. And I would imagine that, again, on a lot of those books, the swastika was used to sell it. This is from England's Dreaming. Savage writes, when the IMF team arrived in England on November 1st, American monetarists came to dictate the policy of a centrist labor government. <laughs> I never, I did not expect this to pop up in this book. This is straight out of Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, where the International Monetary Fund gives loans to countries as a way to get their hooks into them. And this is it. The IMF team arrived in England, American but I don't, I've never heard monetarist before. I assume it's an economist. So American economists dictate the policy of the English government. American economists dictate the policy of 
the English government when the IMF team arrived in England. That's what the IMF does. Did it to any number of developing countries around the world. Did it to Russia at the end of the Soviet Union, working with Yeltsin. In Bolivia, when was this? Was it 2019 when Evo was ousted and then uh, interim government took charge? One of the first things, and they were only in there for a few months before socialists took back power. One of the first things they did is they took out a loan from the IMF. Because once the IMF has its hooks in you, then, as they say, as Savage said, you have American economists writing your policies. And what are those policies going to be? It's going to be slash social spending, deregulation, denationalization, and opening up business for international corporations to come in and pillage your resources. And a few people... At the top echelon of society, have a lot of opportunities for graft and make a lot of money, and the people will suffer intensely. Savage writes, even the avuncular James Callahan, which I assume was a British politician, could not disguise the fact that the consensus that had governed post-war politics and social life was cracking up. This consensus, partly inspired by the century-long democratic ideal of American consumerism, was not only inadequate against the recession of the mid-1970s, but also patently untrue. One had only to look at the decaying inner cities to realize that poverty and inequality, far from being eradicated, were visible as never before. I love this piece of writing from Savage. This consensus, partly inspired by the century-long democratic ideal of American consumerism. The democratic ideal of American consumerism. Oh, there's some idiot Benny somebody on Twitter, some right-wing hack who, he went to Cuba and he took photographs of a very clean, very modern, very nice supermarket where there were like two brands of cereal. And he's like, this is what socialism looks like. Because Americans, as long as we have choice between brands, we think that is freedom of choice. That is our freedom of choice. So my t-shirt, Give Me Fries with that, where the eagle is flying in with its red white and blue star-spangled wings and in one talon it has a burger and in the other talon it has a, like a big gulp drink like that's that's what that t-shirt is about right this right here the century-long democratic ideal of american consumerism so let's say it's the 1970s and you live in england you are english you've been brought up in england and you have your head filled with these ideas about england as Defender of the faith, defender of freedom, the victors against evil. And that evil is personified by Hitler, and it's represented by the swastika. And the Sunday Times, owned by Rupert Murdoch, starts publishing the Hitler Diaries, handwritten diaries attributed to the Fuhrer himself. And these things see publication largely because Murdoch, he hires experts to vet the documents, but then... He begins to pressure them. He makes the final call to publish, even though he has the experts rethinking their assessment of the documents. He pushes it through. The Sunday Times gets a 20% jump in subscribers. And of course, it turns out that the diaries are forgeries, that a guy, he made it all up. And this is at the end of a lengthy bidding war between Murdoch, 
and the German magazine Stern and the U.S. magazine Newsweek for the rights to the diaries. And Murdoch, when he's kind of assessing the situation after the fact, he says, well, we got a 20% jump in subscribers and most of them didn't cancel afterwards. So for him, selling Hitler to the people as a commodity was a big success. And in response to the selling of this fake Hitler diary series, there's more things to consume because there are books that talk about the scandal and there are feature films. There's the ITV documentary Selling Hitler and the German feature film titled Stonk. So Hitler, the personification of evil, is being used to sell all kinds of books is being used by Rupert Murdoch to sell newspapers. And by the way, the Sunday Times, <laughs> before they published the forged Hitler diaries, they published the Mussolini diaries, which, you guess it, turned out to be forgeries. So Hitler, the symbol of evil, becomes a brand to sell. Again, it's kind of like the t-shirt that I talked about earlier with the 12-year-old boy. Punks are just reflecting it back to you. This exists, it's out there, it's making money, it's a commodity. And with the 12-year-old boy, it's, it's more of like, you don't care about this. You're disgusted by it, but not enough to actually do something to help the kids who are being exploited by this stuff. It's out there, it exists, it has an address in Essex. You could stop it, <laughs> but you don't want to because you can't be bothered. You just don't want it in your face. With Hitler, it's even more direct than that. It's more flagrant. You are titillated by Hitler. You are excited. There's a thrill you get watching the old scratchy black and white reels, reading about his... I remember one time a hustler had an article about I still remember the illustration. This was when I was really, I, I was a kid. Hustler ran a story about Hitler enjoyed water sports in terms of sexual activity. And of course, you know, people said the same thing about Trump. As if that's the worst thing you can think of. I don't know if it's in, if it's in a shower, who cares? It, whatever. Uh, and with the Hustler article, obviously you're putting two things together, Hitler and sex. So people are fascinated by this guy. And... They get a thrill out of learning about it. And, and again, people like Danny Fields, that's totally legitimate, right? I mean, learning about the Nazis is not bad. And when I was in college, I took a history class, Hitler and the Nazis. And there was certainly no glorification going on or titillation. It, was, it wasn't diaries with lurid secrets that turn out to be completely fake. So when Hitler becomes a brand that society uses to sell crap. What's the difference between putting an armband that has a swastika on your body or putting it on a book? Again, clothing is different. And one of the things at play here was something that has not changed as I learned when I did my Hamas hoodie that riffed on the Hermes name mark and logo against that really bright orange. People think that representation equals endorsement. It's a very basic derogatory, very basic view, but it kind of makes sense with clothing, right? Because if I'm wearing like a Cubs shirt, you assume that I like the Cubs. That's a reasonable expectation, but you know, I wear White Sox hats. It's not because I like the White Sox. I don't, I don't dislike them. I don't care. I just hate Cubs culture. I don't care about the team, but the culture of Wrigleyville is a really toxic and dangerous culture. Thus, I wear Sox hats just to be obnoxious, right? 
I don't really care about the team. If a 16-year-old is wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, I don't necessarily assume, I wouldn't assume that that person loves Iron Maiden. If Otto from The Simpsons is wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, I'm going to assume that he likes Iron Maiden. The details are pretty fine with this stuff. And again, it's like the person said, who I mentioned earlier, that it's a pipe dream expecting people to get these kind of subtleties. Especially whether they're national front lunkheads or teenagers into punk. In the wild one, somebody asks Marlon Brando, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what do you got? This is John Lydon talking about sex, quoted by Savage in the book England Streaming. Sex were doing something different from everybody else. And they weren't liked, which was absolutely brilliant. They were totally horrible people. Vivian was the most awful old bag. And that, <laughs> and that really fascinated me. Vivian's a killer, a vicious lady. To buy anything in that shop was a real fight. I loved the rubber t-shirt, lock, stock, and barrel. I thought it was the most repulsive thing I had ever seen. To wear it as a piece of clothing rather than part of some sexual fetish was hilarious. When he says it was a fight in the shop to buy anything, people talk about how Vivian would hurt sales because she would want to know how people were going to wear what they were buying. They had to have the right motivation. <laughs> they had to like basically pass muster with her which is kind of extraordinary. And we have this idea of sexual fetish slash streetwear. But then, you know, Leiden is talking about how they weren't liked, which was brilliant. They were horrible, which was great. He says, Jordan was always friendly. She'd obviously seen us for what we were, which was silly little kids who didn't have a clue. We'd go to the King's Road just to annoy people. It was necessary then. <laughs> Long hair was everywhere. What was there to do then? There was Soul Boys and Roxy Music kind of clothes. All that was naff, very weedy and not going anywhere. People were very stiff and boring. I was bored with everything. Well, Johnny was not the only person who was bored. Elsewhere in the book, Savage writes, But McLaren was bored again. In May 1974, he wrote to Roberta Bailey, who had returned to New York. In the same breath as he talks about the new designs for the shop, he mentions that he is, quote, still fucking trying to sell it. No luck so far, hopefully soon I will, because I will be heading for New York when I do. I want to come this time for a long time. Close quote. The letter ends with his latest brainwave. Quote, I've written lyrics for a couple of songs, one called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. I have the idea of the singer looking like Hitler, those gestures, arm shapes, etc., and talking about his mum in incestuous phrases. This man was a grown child. Earlier, I mentioned this idea of punks just wanting to do whatever they wanted to do, regardless of how it impacted anyone else. And I mentioned Sid Vicious in jail. And this is what Savage says of that. Savage writes, a week later, Vicious was in Ashford Remand Center, from where he wrote a letter which contains the material one might expect from a 20-year-old locked up for the first time. Apart from some contrition, there are the horrors. Quote, I get so agitated in here that I can't sleep at all. When I do, I get the most awful nightmares. Close quote. Clues emerge about the material he was being fed. Quote, I'm reading a book about Charles Manson, which Vivian lent me, and am finding it quite fascinating. And then Savage says, but finally, there is a serious statement of intent. Sid Vicious wrote, one of the things I believe in since being slung in here is total personal freedom. This kind of puerile thinking is behind the song New York, 
the second to last track on the album never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistols new york is a diss track aimed at the new york dolls on the new york dolls first album there was a song called pills and a song called looking for a kiss and this is what johnny rotten is referencing when he vocalizes the following still out on those pills a looking for a kiss you're coming to this i want to kiss anything oh kiss this gay boy and the song also includes the homophobic f-word they mentioned max's kansas city which was home base for glam rock including the dolls it's transparently a diss track against the dolls and it's all anchored on homophobia if the clash were to do the song straight to hell today they would face a lot of backlash for that but you can see what the band was trying to get across in that song the message there is it's good, right? It's maybe could have left out some of the uh, imitations, <laughs> but but with New York, there's no redeeming quality to the song at all. It's just a crassly, transparently homophobic screed. Savage talks about the Clash's film Rude Boy and Strummer and Rodent. They're Rody and Superfan. I mentioned earlier. Strummer says. The reason the left wing is better than the right wing is that it's not just the many slaving for the few. So that's Strummer. And then Rodent says, my idea is to become one of the few. I want to be a capitalist. In 1977, the magazine Investors Chronicle named the Sex Pistols the Young Businessmen of the Year. Ah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Just a couple quick notes on fashion in general. I had mentioned earlier how London punk was really fashion-oriented. Malcolm Garrett is quoted in the book as saying, You didn't need bondage trousers and spiky hair to be a punk in Manchester. It was more a question of your attitude. Everybody got their clothes from the Salvation Army or the antique clothes market. Coming to London to see the Ramones in June, I was astounded at how fashion-oriented it was. It was more homemade in Manchester. People aren't as cool there <laughs> as they are in London. There, everyone is on the guest list. In Manchester, you get dressed up, you go out to have fun, and you get wild. There are a couple things I forgot to tell you. One, when I was talking about resistance to the swastika and how Rhodes wouldn't let Susie use their equipment if she was going to wear the armband. Johnny Rotten himself, Mr. MAGA, Mr. I'm Sad the Queen is Dead, said, you know, what they were doing was kind of really naive, wearing the swastika. And I understand the statement they were trying to make, but it just doesn't work like that. Well, another part of the real-world resistance to this, there's a guy in the book who talks about how he wore a Nazi armband and was accosted by somebody on the street and got his ass beat, basically. <laughs> I mean, basically, this person just beat the shit out of him on the street for wearing it. So they're... There definitely were people. I mean, they were being provocative and they provoked. And this is the thing when you believe provocation is a public service is that you have to be willing to take the backlash. The other thing I forgot to tell you, I mentioned the sex t-shirt design with the Cowboys and how it was drawn in the style of Tom of Finland. Well, lo and behold, J.W. Anderson, a clothing line, has a Tom of Finland capsule that is available right now. And the capsule is built around one illustration. The illustration shows two bros who are hanging out by the edge of a body of water. 
one guy on the left. Both these guys are, they look almost identical. They're barrel-chested. They look sort of like, kind of like young Arnold Schwarzeneggers or maybe even like a archetypal California bro with lean bodies, but they're very, they're very muscular as well. The guy standing on the left is wearing sort of breeches, like the old football pants with the laces up the front. And he's just got a massive bulge. And then standing to the right with his back kind of turned to us is another bro. This bro is making a muscle with one arm and then he's pointing to it with his other hand and he's completely nude. So we see his backside and then sticking out in front of him is just a massive dog. I mean, we're talking like this thing is like 12 inches and it looks like he's got a halfy. Uh, he's not flaccid, but definitely not full on either. And just a tremendous girth on that thing too. So that's the illustration. And you can get it on a fitted sleeveless tank top for the low, low price of $210. You can get it on a t-shirt, but it's just a crop of one of the guy's faces. It's not the whole shebang. It's a crop of one of the guy's faces on the left breast, kind of like where you would find a polo insignia, whether it's the Ralph Lauren equestrian, the Lacoste crocodile, the Fred Perry laurel wreath, or the cola guillotine. If you haven't seen that, you should check it out at my website, www.thecolacorporation.com. Okay, the t-shirt with just the the illustration of the guy's face, that is $165. There are some shorts in here. Well, the model is wearing shorts in um, the photo of the t-shirt, but I don't see the shorts elsewhere. But I do see a jock strap that has the illustration screened on the pouch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and these are $155. So remember, I am a piece of shit capitalist pig for charging $85 for a hoodie that is made in America. Now, of course, I don't have a license with Tom Findlin, and I don't have any dongs on my stuff. Maybe, maybe I'm missing out. All right, listen, that just about wraps up this episode. If you've stuck with me this long, oh, I don't know. Usually I put a couple Easter eggs throughout the episode. Let's say... Uh, first two people to either tweet at me or email me. Twitter is at the Cola Corp, C-O-R-P. Email is info at the Corporation.com. Let's say the first two people to do that will get, um, I don't know, a, uh, a sticker pack. I don't know. Uh, uh, what did I give before? Oh, shit. I think I gave a hoodie before. Well, fuck it. I don't know. Just hit me up and we'll, we'll figure it out. All right. First two people. One email, one Twitter, or two emails, two, two Twitters, however it works out. First two people who contact me and just uh, DM or email um, Punk Podcast, and then that'll be that. All right. So next up for me, there's a ton of stuff going on with Cola, with the brand. I, I mentioned some of my edgelord-ish stuff. I mentioned the Hamas hoodie. Um, I don't know. I don't feel like talking about it right now. It's not because I don't. I will talk about it. I think it's worth talking about and talking through this this idea of edgelordism. I just don't feel like doing it now. Maybe we can do something else with it. Maybe it won't be a podcast. Maybe we could do like questions on Twitter. That's probably a bad idea. All right. Listen, it's been two hours of recording. Thank you for listening. You guys are the best. Let me know if you have questions, comments, concerns, and don't wear swastikas.